From Editor-at-Large, this is Business of Home. I'm your host, Dennis Scully. Every week, I'll be talking to leaders and innovators from all corners of the home industry. I hope you'll join me. Before we start this week's episode, I want to give a special thanks to High Point Market for supporting the Business of Home podcast. Twice a year, tens of thousands of designers and retailers flock to the town of High Point, North Carolina for five days of shopping, networking, and learning. Held in the furniture capital of the world, it is the largest home furnishings trade show, with over 11.5 million square feet by roughly 2,000 exhibitors throughout about 180 buildings. To register for Spring Market April 14th through the 18th, visit highpointmarket.org. And now, on with the show. My guest this week is Matt Sanders. Matt is the co-founder and creative director of the design firm Consort. Matt, welcome. Thank you. So glad to have you here. Now, I notice in your press materials, Consort is described as a celebrity design firm. Are you a celebrity, Matt? <laughs> um, you know, I always I, I always laugh about the interior design industry because it's almost like those Christopher Guest movies, yes. you know, Waiting for Guffman or Best in Show. <laughs> right. These isolated worlds of an industry where within those industries there are people who are very well known and are celebrities within their own right, but outside of these worlds, nobody knows who any of these people <laughs> are. Um, so we actually joke a lot of, when we go to High Point. In fact, we joke a lot about that world and the people that are the well known and the people that are kind of celebrities and we have we have a joke that we're high point famous yes so you're very well known in that world yes but but i guess you, you've also worked with some celebrities in the past and we'll and we'll talk about that as we get into everything that you've that you've done but i wanted to start by talking about your background and how you got into the industry in the first place i want to hear about matt sanders oh okay Sure, yeah. I think like a lot of people who enter into the interior design world, I've had a path that was unconventional. I, I grew up in the theater, actually, and I, I studied theater in college, and I moved to New York to be an actor. Um, and, you know, when, when you work in the theater for as long as I did, since, a ch- since childhood, um, you know, you really get a sense of what it's like to work in collaborative environments. And you really are forced to kind of learn how to do everything creatively, build sets, be a personality, act, design press materials. Like, like you, you could and could not be asked to do anything at any point in time. Which is such great, great training, right? I mean, don't you think that everyone should be encouraged to, to work in the theater for a time? It really is. I mean, it teaches you to be a very resourceful person. And I attribute that to where I am today. And I have no regrets about taking that path, about spending that time um, you know, in that field for as long as I did because I really think above and beyond any, above and beyond any other liberal arts education, yeah. that experience has been most valuable to where I am today. Um, so I moved to New York to become an actor and I was doing commercial work. I was in Wendy's commercials and Clear Cell commercials and MTV commercials. Oh, and great. And that, that was kind of paying the bills, but at night my true passion was Shakespeare. And I was working for the American Globe Theater and I was their resident. Is resi- that right? Yeah, I was their resident clown. I've played like many of the greatest funny roles Shakespeare has ever written. Um, and I, I, I would get nothing. I'd get paid nothing to do that, but it was just so fun to like. But you loved it. I'd hit the pavement all day doing auditions for commercials that would like pay me some money and I, I'd get some great residual checks from that and then I'd go and I'd do Shakespeare for free at night. Um, and it was, it was so fun. And then just because I am such a creative person who just thrives on you know, being able to do a lot of things all the time. I was also um, getting my feet wet with styling. I was really into styling. Okay. I would help out with set design. I would be designing sets for theater. Um, and it kind of led me into styling for the interiors world. Um, so I would style assist for magazine photo shoots, uh, specifically for interiors and lifestyle, lifestyle related content. Oh, okay. Um, and that's kind of how I first started getting my feet wet with interiors. And so did that, is that what ultimately led to you coming to Apartment Therapy? I, I remember seeing that as one of the places you, you ended up early on. Yeah, so Apartment Therapy is what really launched me officially into the interior design world. When I first moved to New York, I found this tiny 250 square foot little apartment in the West Village above the Waverly Diner. Oh. Um, it was absolutely disgusting. <laughs> it had nothing, it had an old broke down piano organ that I had to have friends come and help me like disassemble and remove because I couldn't even afford someone to 
you know, come and take it away for me. Right. Um, it was completely falling apart. It had a pencil drawing of a sad-faced clown being rained on on the wall. <laughs> oh, dear. Um, but I looked around, and the bones of it were just so cool. It was. It had really high ceilings and two big windows, and it was just one tiny room. But um, it was a lofted space. So there was a kitchen, and then above the kitchen was a little sleeping crawl space, and then above the bathroom was another crawl space. Um, and it almost had like a ship-like feel to it. Like it, for some reason it felt like yeah. you're on a boat. So, um, you know, I, I, I was a struggling artist. I didn't have a lot to work with, but I, I'm from Florida and I would visit, I would go to Fire Island. I was, had visited friends in the Hamptons. Right. Um, I was going to Provincetown. So anywhere that I went to these nautical destinations, I was, I was hitting up flea markets and garage sales and, um, you know, estate sales and whatnot. And I just collected all of this nautical paraphernalia. So I decorated the apartment in this over-the-top nautical theme <laughs> yeah. that is kind. It was kind of similar to um, like Ralph Lauren meets Pee Wee's Playhouse. So it was Love kind it. of chic, but pretty ridiculous. <laughs> and um, it caught the attention of apartment therapy. Um, a friend of mine told me I should submit it for their big program, the uh, the contest, the big small cool space contest. Okay. I didn't win. I was devastated. I, I think I came in third or something. <sighs> But um, so close. But ultimately, I was the winner because when they came out with their book, the Big Book of Small Cool Spaces, mm. they shot it for that book, and it ended up being the cover. Um, wow. Okay. The reason they picked it for the cover was they said because in the one image they could see a living room, a kitchen, a bedroom, and an entry, and so no other image encompassed a small <laughs> All space. Only two hundred and fifty feet. Better than mine. Um, so I mean, the exposure from that was quite incredible. It was a best-selling book. Um, you know, it, it led to a lot of other opportunities for me. And um, I started writing for apartment therapy. I developed a great relationship with them and became a freelance writer. So suddenly I was just writing about something that I had, you know, loved in a very earnest way for so long. Yeah. Um, and after a couple of years of just being a freelance writer for them, um, I came on board as their market editor. Okay. So suddenly I was thrust into real journalism, real editorial opportunity um, and I was focused on the market and my beat was store openings and sales and new product releases and um, you know really starting to get an understanding of, of, of that world and it was so fun to me to have stepped to have stepped from like being a crazy artist running around New York City doing whatever he wanted to suddenly being this editor who you know would attend parties and hobnob with the PR people and get sure. sent like Dyson vacuums and <laughs> Swiffer wet jets and I was like this is the life <laughs> this is great <laughs> well and you're totally plugged into everything that was sort of going on in the scene mm -hmm. being a market editor at apartment therapy 100% and what was really interesting about that time this was 2006 okay the internet was and still is really the wild wild west especially right. when it comes to interiors content online so working at apartment therapy at that time under maxwell ryan who mm. is a complete visionary a genius um was so formative to everything else that i've done since um you know his his love of design combined with his immense knowledge of digital content and how to build a community around that was, again, like no other education yeah. you could have possibly received anywhere. And while I wasn't there for, for that long, I was only there a few years, mm -hmm. um, you know, the amount that I was able to absorb and the things I was able to learn from him um, were really, really crucial to my next steps. That's fantastic. And he, he was so early. And as you say, he was such a visionary. Um, and really, I mean, now looking back, everyone sort of talks about him as sort of the the grandfather of that of that whole industry yeah i mean it's crazy at that time apartment therapy was doing like eight million unique visitors a month yeah. which today it's like it's nearly impossible to to build an interiors based website with that kind of traffic and following so the fact that he he, he got there that long ago yeah is mind-blowing no it really is so that was an incredible training ground for you and it prepared you for for what what was the next step after that so the next step for me was moving to Condé Nast to a big corporate ah. entity um, and they found me so it was around the time they were thinking about relaunching Domino magazine and they knew they wanted it to have a digital component to it with with the relaunch and so 
again, it's 2006, 2007 or something, and, and um, the powers that be were trying to find an editor who knew about the interiors design space, who also knew about the digital world. And apparently that didn't exist anywhere. Right. Somehow my name came across someone's table and they plucked me over for an interview. And with two weeks, I was working at Condé Nast on this really, really small team strategizing what the domino relaunch would be. Um, and that was definitely one of those fake it till you make it moments for me, where I was looking around at this <laughs> team of people. I was literally the only editor on the team. Okay. Um, you know, they, there, there was a, a, a copy editor. Um, there was an editorial director who mm -hmm. we, we were working out of a special divisions group called the um, Editorial Development Group, right. which was run under Scott Dadich, who was another visionary yeah. um, in the editorial space. Um, we had an incredible art director, and uh, it, it was just a very small team. And the, the goal was to kind of repackage old Domino content mm -hmm. and um, archived content that had never seen the light of day. And we had a very small budget to shoot some new original content um, and to repackage these special editions in order right. to kind of test the market and see how people would respond to what the new Domino would look like. So what was really fun about it is that we just got to dig into the Dominoes and everyone has their stack of Dominoes to this sure. day. Um, uh, and to think about as time had gone by, and I think it, I think it had probably been folded for four or five years at that point, how the magazine would have evolved into what it would be today. So both from the art direction to the voice, to the product standpoint, to really work with this small team of people and um, you know create a print product, which I'd never done before, in tandem with uh, a concept um, and a strategy for what the website would look like um, was amazing. It was the, yeah. the most incredible experience I've ever had in my life. It was so fast paced. The budgets were so tiny, but we were already working with such amazing material um, and the resources and the excitement Condé Nast had behind what we were doing was just so, so fun. Yeah, it, it was it, such a beloved magazine. And so so I worked for, for Domino, the original Domino. Uh, and it was it was so sad when the magazine folded. And we've we've actually talked about that recently with people. Uh, it was it was such a beloved brand. And so when you were working on sort of bringing it back originally sort of for the newsstand only and sort of testing it, everyone got very excited at the thought of the magazine coming back mm -hmm. and um, sort of reigniting everything that people had loved about it. But as you say, imagining what it would be like had it evolved three, four years mm -hmm. uh, after it after it closed. Yeah. So, and talk about a community of people. Yes, people were very, very excited about what we were doing and the hate we received. I was going to ask project. because I know that a lot of people were not happy. It was very intense. Yeah. And, and again, it was kind of like social media was just starting to become a thing. So to see it be talked about on Twitter and, and mm. Instagram was like literally had just come out while I was working on that project. Um, it was it was really it was really interesting to hear the perspectives from people on both sides of the equation. But and did you have to sort of block that out in order to stay focused? I on blocked what that you're out. Doing? I focused okay. on what we were doing. I was so proud of the work. Okay. To me, it was so you. cool what we were doing, and and that's the way I've always operated. You know, yeah. I, I really focus on what I'm doing and try to do it as best as possible. And you know, if I believe in what I'm doing, um, I, I I had a strong uh, belief that. The haters would come around again when we see when we saw what we created, and right. um, you know, if it weren't for that work, what Domino is now wouldn't would, would never have come about. Yeah, and um, you know, I think everyone's glad that it's back. I think so, and I and I think it was great that you were able to to get through that period and at least prove that in the marketplace there was there was demand for for Domino again which is what that experiment was in, in part all about. Right. I think that Condé Nast always sort of regretted some of the things that it had to do during the financial crisis, closing Domino, closing Gourmet, some of the sort of beloved brands that went away and, and in, in Gourmet's case sort of never returned. But for Domino, it has returned and it wouldn't have been possible without you all sort of going through that period of reminding people what they, what they loved about it. So what came after that? So then, you know, the story of my life, people just keep finding me and pulling me people from one job to the next. People hire you. <laughs> so hard. I, um, I was working on the Domino Project. Uh, we went on a hiatus for a few months while we had wrapped the, the final special edition. And the publishers were looking to get funding to 
take it to the next step. Right. Um, and during that period, a company called Click Media based in Los Angeles reached out to me. Um, they own and operate a property, a website called Who What Where, mm. um, which was one of the first fashion websites to hit the internet and make, uh, you know, fashion editorial that was shoppable, but to do it in a very glossy, high-end, magazine-worthy kind of way. And, then, you know, the company's very focused on quality um, along with the quantity of content. So, so it's a shoppable online magazine, essentially, is what Who What Where was. And they wanted to start a home website. So they thought, well, where can we find somebody that knows about interior design and websites? And apparently I was still the only guy at the time there that you existed were. that was out there. <laughs> so my name came to them through some publicist, um, and they asked me to come out to L.A. for an interview. I thought, I hate LA. I am never moving to LA, but I got some friends out there. So I'll, I'll take this free trip to go visit some friends, take the interview and to see what happens. So that's how you felt about LA at the time? Though? Yeah. Okay. yeah. I was so New York. There's no way I was going to move to Los Angeles. Love it. Um, but I go out, I go, I, I meet these women for this interview, Catherine Power and Hillary Kerr, who were the founders of the company. Mm. Um, and Esty Stanley, who is renowned interior designer and stylist in Los yeah. Angeles. She had already been on come on board for that project as the editor at large before it had launched so um you know she was really helping them find who you know they think they should hire to to run this property um and the interview was incredible i mean it was kind of a dream opportunity to be handed a brand and say you can literally do whatever you want with it we need a voice we need style direction you're gonna create an editorial team and hire them and train them and um, you know this would be your baby to launch um, and to have resources behind it. You know, they already had proven they could do it once in the fashion right. uh, arena. And so um, to do it in the home space was very, very exciting. So I kind of left that interview being like, oh my God, that went really well. And hey, actually, LA is not that hey, bad. Hey, wait, I love it here in <laughs> LA. <laughs> um, so, you know, I've just always followed my nose. And if an okay. opportunity seems right to me, I'm open to possibilities. So. You know, the, the interview process kind of went back and forth for a few weeks and mm -hmm. they offered me the job and I was living in Los Angeles like a month from the, the, the date of the first uh, interview. Um, so, so that was truly a life-changing experience. Yes, I'm sure. So you launched that and that became wildly successful. Yeah, so that, again, we're back to wild, wild west moments. There was not a lot on the internet at the time that was uh, you know, focusing on the interior space in terms right. of a website and everything even back then, and this was probably now 2011, everything was still considered a blog and people couldn't wrap their minds around a website being called anything else other than a blog if it was editorial. Yeah. Um, so uh, we, we started the site, I hired a team um, and our goal was to give it a celebrity focus. So we wanted it to be shoppable content, you know, very similar to what Domino was doing in mm -hmm. print. Yeah. Um, but online, definitely more like click to buy, direct to consumer, uh, kind of easily digestible model. But we wanted quality, quality, quality to be at the forefront of what we did. So we shot all of our content um, when we launched the website. And um, Who What Where has a very celebrity-driven focus. And so Domain Home at the time, as it was called, right. also had to have uh, follow the same suit. So my job suddenly became trying to convince celebrities to let me go in their house and shoot exclusive content for this website they've never they've heard never of heard before. <laughs> yeah. And I think we had Lonnie was doing a really good job at their website at the right. time. I think there was Rue. Um, but other than that, I really can't think of anything else that was out there. Yeah. So you try to convince a publicist or a celebrity manager uh, or an agent to like let a celebrity open up their most intimate space and share it with the world for a website, a blog that no one has ever <laughs> heard of before. Um, so it became about then finding brand partners who would um, come on board to give me furniture to give these people in order to decorate their homes the story got it so um, that's part of what created your ability to get get in with yes look my, what i brought you my job was all about hustling 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 when i got to los angeles in addition to planning and running and editing okay. the content it was about schmoozing hollywood industry schmoozing brand partners in the home space that i'd cultivated great relationships from working as an editor over the year and then creating these like really magical stories um the brands loved it Celebrities loved it because they got free design and like yeah. you know great home furnishings, 
and we were able to create these really magical stories to launch the site with amazing celebrities like um, you know Nicole Richie and Leah Michelle and Molly Sims and Jessica Alba and these really sticky celebrities people wanted to know about. Um, so it was really fun, but that's when I started to kind of become an interior designer because I had no choice. In order to get this story, I had to design these girls' homes. Um, so it was fun. Well, and and the projects were stunning. I mean, you you really. I mean, when you when you launched that, it was it was like nothing else on the on the scene at the Thank time. You. Yeah, it was it was really it was clear that it was going to make a, a huge impression. So you're running around and you've become the interior designer for a lot of these celebrities. And then you've decided, okay, well, wait, I, I can be an interior designer. Let's, let's, let's morph into that next. So how, how long after you launched my domain and did all this, did you say, you know what, let's just go out and do it myself? Yeah, so I was um, working for, it was Domain Home. And then, um, you know, as the website grew, you really follow the analytics. You look at the data, you see what people are interested in. And um, I think that was something I've learned now as a businessman um, to, you know, Follow the analytics. Mm. What are people clicking on? What do people yes. want? And then you give them the chicest version of that. And with domain, um, you know, it really started to evolve into a women's lifestyle site. Mm -hmm. We started to see that beyond just the home content, which was the root of everything, that our readers were really interested in things like career advice and sex advice and travel and food. And so the content started to really expand and the website started to really evolve into something else. And I stayed on board and my, and my role evolved into more of a creative director. Mm -hmm. um, and with that, uh, you know, I shifted my focus on continuing to bring in uh, these high-profile individuals to shoot their homes and create partnerships. Um, but the, the, the labor involved in designing their homes, yeah. um, you know, started to take me away from the editorial responsibilities. And, and I really started to enjoy the interior design work um, better. You know, I'd always been an editor where I, where I was talking about everyone else doing it. And suddenly right. I was like excited about being the one to do it myself. Um, at the time, my boyfriend, Brandon, who was living in New York, uh, was about to move to Los Angeles. He worked on the design and development team for SoulCycle. Okay. So he was charged at that time uh, with the West Coast expansion of SoulCycle and designing and opening those spaces. So he moved out to uh, LA and um, we started taking design clients on the side. Um, you know, uh, I, I really needed to ask time from Click Media in order to invest myself into these design projects and, mm -hmm. and get them published. Um, and they gave me that blessing and we came to a new arrangement where I kind of moved to an editor-at-large role so that I could start my own interior design business with Brandon. Um, so it was kind of accidental. It just yeah. kind of organically happened. And it was one of, the th one of those things I didn't even really think too much about. I'm just gonna like, now nah, I'll be an interior designer now. Um, and, you know, looking back on it, I, I joke that it was, uh, you know, one of those decisions maybe I should have given a little more thought to because interior design is one of the hardest things you could possibly ever decide to is do. It's an incredibly challenging field to, yes. to leap into. Now, now Brandon had, had architectural training, do I recall? Yep, Brandon's an architect. He okay. um, cut his teeth at uh, Shop Architects. Right. Um, so doing some really serious, amazing, groundbreaking work. Yeah. Um, and then he moved brand side uh, with SoulCycle, which was really, really fun for him. So it, it was interesting because between the two of us, um, now starting an interior design business, he has more of an architectural mind. He can draw, he can, he can run projects and teams. I was more kind of style guy. I understood, I understood pillows and composition <laughs> and color and right. edit, how to make things look super editorial and fun. Um, so, so that was the marriage of our really great partnership. And that's what our, our, um, chemistry was business wise. Um, on top of that, we both had this really great experience in brand building, you know, SoulCycle, he got to see what SoulCycle was as it was blowing up. And so he yeah. had a really strong understanding of, of how to build a brand from that perspective. And uh, me having worked for these digital entities, uh, you know, I really got a sense of what it was like to, to work on many different levels from an established startup like Apartment Therapy to Condé Nast, which was a big corporation trying to basically reboot a brand. And then over to Domain Home, which was total startup vibe. And I think that's really where I... I, I, I got like my entrepreneurial sensibilities because it was a really fun startup to be a part of. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure. And as you say, what a great training ground you've had every sort of step of the way. So then you and Brandon finally decide to sort of take this leap and, and go into 
as we've said, this incredibly challenging field of becoming interior designers. Were you already working with some of these celebrities that you had helped at Domain Home? Yes, and that's really how the business started because uh, you know we would do like a single room for a celebrity, put it online on Domain, and then they'd come back and they'd be like, well, I also need like my whole outdoor and the upper level of my house done. Can you do that too? And it'd be like, you know, we can't do that anymore. Like, you know, we're ready to move on in terms of editorial opportunities. Yeah. But if you'd like to hire me, um, you know, I would love to continue to help you. And so there were a handful of those that kind of started okay. the business. Okay. Um, and uh, yeah, that's 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 kind of how we that that, that was our initial client base. Um, and as the interior design industry goes, it's it's all referral based. So they would recommend us to someone else, and they would recommend you to someone else. And that's the way Hollywood works too. Yeah. Is that. Um, you know, it's all about finding the people that it's all about them finding the people that they can trust. And if they trust you, then you just get passed all around. Um, so before we knew it, we had this roster of clients that we just simply could not even either of us couldn't handle having any other side job whatsoever. And we woke up one day and we were like, I think we have to take the leap. Um, so we put in our notice at our day jobs and we solely focused on that. And that, that was that was the biggest, scariest moment for us. In, our, in, sure. in the timeline yeah. of consort That's... to make the decision to devote ourselves wholly to this one project. And at that point, had you had was consort already the name, and had you had you thought about all of that, or? Well, we had to sit down and come up with a name. Yeah, right? and we were like, should we call it Sanders and Quatrone? And that just didn't really have like a nice ring to it. Um, and then we just started to make a list of names on a piece of paper, just thing, the words that resonated with us, things that we thought were cool. Um, and in that discussion is when we kind of first formulated the idea of what we wanted the company to be. And me having worked in the tech industries before, you know, I thought it was really important in that moment as we were starting our interior design firm to think of a way that we could make this bigger than either of us. Um, you know, and, and having written about editors, or, mm -hmm. or I'm sorry, having written about interior designers for so long, I really saw their struggle in being able to take their businesses to a level beyond themselves, really because they put their own name on their business, you know? So we always knew we wanted this to be bigger than us, so we decided in that moment to give it a name that had nothing to do with either of right. us. Right, okay. Um, so we came up with consort. Um, it's always been one of my favorite words. It's, uh, you know, it has kind of like, it, it's an old word. It's an, I'm sorry, it's an old word, but it kind of has like a modern ring to it. Um, and, you know, it's kind of it's the confidant to the king or the queen. Yes. Um, it's usually someone that might get them into trouble. Um, and we kind of felt it was apropos for us because we were always getting hired by these rich ladies and making them go over budget and then their husbands would get mad at them. <laughs> exactly, you were spending all the husband's money. <laughs> exactly. and, yeah. Uh -huh. <laughs> Um, so, th so that's that's where the name came from. And so, at, you say at the time you knew you wanted it to be bigger than just the two of you. So, so what what vision did you have in the beginning? Well, um, unlike a normal interior design firm who would probably you know spend whatever extra cash they had on a design assistant to help them, I was like, I think we need to hire a, like a content manager. So it's just like <laughs> me and Brandon doing interior design work, and then we invested whatever little we had into someone to just follow us around and help us like. Get, do our social media and and aggressively do that because you knew how important that was. I knew how very important that yeah. was going to be to growing what we do. So yeah. I was fortunate enough to have a lot of contacts editorially in the digital space to be able to get our work published as soon as we finished it. But um, you know, it's no joke trying to keep up with your own social media, and I'm sure any small business owner can tell you that they just don't have the time to do it, yeah, or they don't have the resources to figure out exactly how to do it. So I knew how to do it, but I knew I didn't have the time to do it. So I hired a part-time kid to just come in three days a week, and just like I was running another editorial entity, I've created a an editorial calendar for him and a social media calendar, and That's um, great. you know a style guide and brand standards. <laughs> even though we were only existed for like two weeks at that point, yeah. and just set him off on his path. And I really think of that position then and still do as kind of a documentarian for what we do. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, that was really important to growing um, the company really quickly because I've always been very impatient. I worked for print kind of for that very short period of time at Condé Nast, but where my true passion is still is in digital media. Um, so anytime we finished a project, I, I, I didn't even care about print. I just put it online, put it online. I'd reach out to any of my contacts and... Um, 
you know, when I was working at Domain, I, the, the designers that I would see really grow their businesses on social media the fastest were the ones that were playing a game that no one was playing at the time, which was to shoot your own projects, shoot it really well, send it to a digital editor. Those editors are hungry for content and they're hungry for original content. Sure. So if you make that very easy for them, you package it for them and you get it for them, that story will be up in two weeks. You'll have all the social media mentions across all of these channels. And I just watched all of these designers like, uh, like Disc Interiors was doing a really good job when right. I was at uh, Domain. They, I mean, they were, they were my favorite. <laughs> Still my friends in LA and I talk about them all the time as being the designers that would shoot their own work and they were so smart to send it to me and we would put it up so quickly. Um, you know, and I, I think their business really succeeded um, a lot because of the attention that they got in the digital space at the time. Um, so that's what I wanted to do with Consort. So we, we really didn't publish a lot in print and we just focused on digital, digital, digital and making sure to do all the things that you need to do in order to ensure that you get those social mentions. Because it's one thing to just give your story to an editorial entity, but you must really make sure that you're asking for certain things in exchange for offering them this free content that's gonna be free to them. And that's social media mentions, that's having your company name mentioned and linked within the first few lines of text, because that's gonna be very important for your SEO when you get published. Um, and uh, you know that if they are ever sharing their image or publishing it from then on that you make sure to include and link to the photographer because you always got to shout out to those photographers. Take, take care of those photographers. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and, and not enough people do that today. Right. And it's, it's a big issue. But, but, that, but that's great that you knew all of the things that you, that you wanted to get from this partnership of, of sharing your materials. And, uh, and you've got a huge social media following now as, as a result. I think you've got 100,000 followers on Instagram and, uh, and, and, you, and you know what you're doing. And you knew how to instruct this young man who's, who's sort of doing it for you. I don't know if that same gent is still doing it for you, but um, that, was, that was a very smart strategy. And these days you can really sort of bypass print media. A lot of the, a lot of the people who are very successful on Instagram tell me they, they can't even wait for, for print media or a magazine to decide whether or not they're going to use this project or not use it because they need to feed the, the content supply. It's so frustrating. And our yeah. publicist... We love her, but they get so mad at me because I just can't hold on. I finish a project. And I just want to put it on Instagram. I want to put it on my own website. I just want to get it out there. And she's like, Matt, you have to wait. Yeah. You have to respect these editors. They're <laughs> holding on to this project. This is going to be a big deal from you. And I just squirm in my seat for months and months and months waiting for this thing to come out. Well, and it is very challenging. And it's so challenging. Yeah. I mean, and as I say, a lot of people have just sort of moved past that. Great, great if we get a project published in print, but honestly... There, there's so much that we can do digitally, um, and particularly when you've got your own site for the showrooms and everything else, you've you've got to keep things moving. So, so let's talk about that. So the so consort is is born, and you're doing all these projects, and you're and you're building your your social following. And uh, at, at what point do you open up a, a shop in LA? Yeah. So I think um, through our social media presence, we really saw. A response to the work that we were doing um, not just people being like I love this but people saying where do I get this um, so they loved your look they loved and, the look. and they wanted to be able to, to purchase products that they saw and you're constantly asking about the sourcing um, and we'd respond in the comments and we'd lead them to a certain place and I think it was during um, one of the legends events you know the last again I got design quarter uh, yeah. event where we were just really getting put through the ringer by one of our clients that we were installing with and our you know our eyes were like down to here and we were just like dragging our feet trying to keep up and network and be at all the events and I think we were at Thomas Lavin's house at, at his party. We were in the backyard and we just didn't even have it in us to hobnob or meet <laughs> anyone. We were just like downing whatever the specialty cocktail was, leaning on a bar and just being like, oh my God, how are we going to get through the rest of this week? And we heard some designers next to us laughing, just being like, <laughs> and I told him, if you want to make any money in this industry, you got to get out of design and you got to get into product. <laughs> and Brent and I both kind of looked at each other like, Oh, and like the light bulb <laughs> went off in our head. And that was the turning moment for us to decide to become more of a product-driven company. Right. So we thought, let's open a design boutique. And what I love about Los Angeles that I noticed immediately upon moving there 
um, that was different from New York and different from a lot of the other cities that I've been to is that the design boutique is a real thing there. Mm. Um, this idea that there's an interior designer working out of the back and there's this wonderful world of curated decor and furniture that really brings to life their style. Um, and it really is like a very LA-centric model. Um, so we were thought, let's do that. We have a design firm. We know of all these like, great sources and artists that we already work with. Like, let's, let's get them to put stuff in a shop and, and let's do this. So um, we opened a store on um, Melrose in a cute little design district that to this day still doesn't have a name. We need to designate it. <laughs> okay. uh, but it's over, um, it's across from Cliff Fong's Gallery Half. Lawson Fenning is a couple of blocks right. away. Okay. The Window, Reform Gallery. Some really cool kids yeah. in the design space are, are on our block. Um, so we thought this is, this is a great space for us. We found a, a space that was a former art gallery. It didn't need a lot of a build out. Um, we were able to just like really move, move in and literally set up shop um, you know, without having to put a lot into it. So we launched that and it started going really well. I mean, this model of being able to um, have interior design clients and then sell them a lot of things that are in your own store right. was this great symbiotic thing that every, everything fed each other in this really great way. And then we'd have people coming off the street shopping and they'd be like, oh, you do interior design services? And then that would lead to client work. So the model worked really well. Um, the social media, the organic social media promotion we were doing was really driving a lot of people into the store and started driving um, web sales. And um, you know, we decided that we wanted to take the next step and really scale this idea. And we thought, you know, this hasn't ever been done before. No one's really scaled the design boutique concept of interior design services paired with shopping together. So wherever you go and wherever you see a consort, no matter where they open, you know that it's gonna be great shopping for the home, but hey, I can also hire an interior designer to help me do what I wanna do. And were you physically on site at the, at the place in Melrose? Were you, was that your design office as well? Oh yes, there was a, um, a receivings facility in the back <laughs> that we converted into an office. Okay. <laughs> very, very much startup vibes. Got it. Um, and uh, since then we've actually moved to uh, a block over to a, a headquarters building on the corner. Um, and, and the merchandise originally was sort of things that you just love to buy for your own projects. And so that was sort of what the inventory was originally. Exactly. It was a lot of artists that we already knew and loved that we right. brought into the shop. Um, it was a little challenging because, you know, the L.A. design scene is pretty saturated as is. So finding, um, you know, brands or artists or makers who weren't already represented somewhere mm -hmm. else. Um, you know, we, we learned very quickly what an exclusive was in the right. market. Yeah. And we really had to do some digging to, to, to find some new artists and makers to represent that no one had found before. But that was a really fun challenge. And Instagram actually was our biggest resource for finding new people because, um, you know, the algorithm is so strong that you start searching for ceramicists, it's just going to start showing you more and more ceramicists that you never knew before. Sure. So we were able to find a lot of vendors um, that we never would have had access to because they're international and they were buried in some trade show we'd never heard of before. Um, so, so social media also played a huge role in helping us shape, um, you know, the people that we were carrying in the store as well. And so then you decided you wanted to scale this. You wanted to, to, to really grow this. And what did that mean? What did you have to do next? So we knew that we had an idea that we really wanted to scale this. But as two creatives who could barely hold the business together as it was, we knew that we needed help in order to do so. Um, to open the first store, I forgot to mention, you know, we did have an angel investor to help us do that, and that okay. was a client. And this is actually a really funny story. So we um, sell these brass hands, we buy them at wholesale, and you know, you have the peace sign, and you have the love sign, and you have the middle finger, which is our best-selling item. Yeah, and um, oh. when I had a little website when we first started the business, it was super shady. It was just to host our portfolio, but I was like, oh, it has an e-commerce component, so let me just start like throwing up some of these products and see if people buy them. And uh, people magically would just like buy these brass hands, even though I would never have shopped that site myself because it was so shadily put together. <laughs> it looked so suspicious. <laughs> it was like so suspicious and, and weird, but I guess people will buy anything online. Um, so someone tried to purchase the middle, the brass middle finger. She lived out in Venice and the shipping was like three times the cost of the product to get it to Venice and bless her heart. She, I just would have been like, give me my money back. She called and she was like, hey, I tried to buy this thing online, but it's telling me it's like three times the cost. Like, can I just come pick it up? And we were like, oh my God, we're so sorry. Let us bring it to you. 
so we bring it to her and she um, had just moved into this new beautiful modern home in Venice um, and she was looking for an interior designer and she goes oh you guys do interior design and so she became one of our dearest friends to this day and um, she was one of the first people to ever purchase something online a brass middle finger hand she um, became a really great a classic that will live in the family forever I hope (laughs) and um, when it came time to us for us wanting to open that first store in Los Angeles um, you know she was a part of that story and she she gave us the angel money to do that so she was our first investor and we like to say that the whole thing started with the middle finger what a great story what a family-friendly story <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, uh, on that note we're gonna take a quick break to remind you to register for High Point Market where we'll be April 14th through the 18th this season's market is packed with events and product intros by some of our favorite designers and brands to register visit highpointmarket.org and now Back to the show. So that's such a great story. So she became your angel investor and made possible the, the first shop. And I, and I gather the shop suddenly becomes successful and you realize, hey, there's a real opportunity here. Let, let's grow this. But you weren't, but you weren't both, uh, as, you, as you say, uh, the, the business side of things, or were, you, or were you growing to become more savvy businessmen by this time? We were going to become the savviest business people we possibly could. <laughs> but to take it to the next step, we obviously knew we needed a significant, we needed to go for a significant capital call and um, you know, to raise a certain amount of money um, in order to even open a next store. And then from there, take it to where we wanted to go um, you know, would also require some really key hires. Suddenly the overhead just would have been way beyond what our current revenue would have allowed right. us to, to do. Um, so these are the two things. And people ask me all the time, how did you do this? And what do I need if I want to start a business? And for me, it was two really key things. Well, well there's three things. One, you had to have uh, you know, a proven history of revenue growth. That you can't, you can't do that without... You know, no investor is going to look at you if your business is a total mess. So if you can show someone that you have a business, as small as it may be, that it has revenue growth, you, you got something to start with. Right. Second, if you're a creative and you know nothing about business, hire a business advisor. <laughs> so we hired a consultant to look at our business, dissect it in a way that we never would have been able to, and to create a business model based on our goals and, and what we want to do and where we wanted to take the company um, to, to bring to any investor to say, hey, this is what they've done. If we hire these people and we invest this much in it, this is what we could do with the business. Um, and in that exercise, you may realize that it's totally impossible. You know, that the model may prove that like this is just not scalable and right. you need to rethink the whole idea. But we were able to kind of put together a model that showed that this, this could be like a really successful thing. And it's exciting because no one has ever done it before. So we have a revenue history. We have a business plan. And the third thing you need to sell anything I've learned is just a really beautiful deck. Just need a beautiful that pitch deck, a beautiful pitch deck. Yeah. So get a great graphic designer. Right. Create a great story. Talk about your customer base. Talk about the vision where you are. Have a really strong mission statement. Talk about the growth. Make it visual and fantastic, especially if you're a creative industry where visuals are so important. Um, and that's what you need. That's that. That's what you need to get what you want. And and was there a model that already existed that you could point to to say we could be the next? What? What, what? That's really hard. And people have always asked us, like, well, what do you compare yourself to yeah. as a company? And nothing really exists out there. You know, right. we know that we want to scale interior design services with shopping together, um, but it doesn't really exist. I think we look to Jonathan Adler in terms mm-hmm. of a brand that has been able to scale but still maintain a boutique feel. Yeah. Um, and they have a strong personality behind the brand, and that's also really important to us. So in that way, we look to them. Um, in terms of interior design services, um, you know, name an interior designer that scaled their business. It's, it's hard. It's possible. I know you just talked to Noah. Yeah. He's been able to scale an interior design model, but um, in a different way than uh, the more analog approach where you're actually coming and hiring consort as your interior design services. So that's been hard. My friend Barclay Butera has been able to do it sure. pretty successfully. Yes. So, um, you know, I talked to him, I looked, I, I looked at his model and what he was doing. Um, and, and, you know, that kind of served as a, a somewhat of a small basis of, of how we could possibly start scaling interior design services. Um, but other than that, like there wasn't really a lot out there to, to, to model what we wanted to do after. 
So you really wanted to scale both the the, the showroom or the or the shops that you opened and the design services sort of together mm-hmm. as as one. Yeah, we wanted to scale the interior design boutique experience. Got it. Okay. So so what did what did potential investors say to you when you showed them your beautiful pitch deck? What it, did they did they understand it? Did they say yes? I I could see this. They were so excited. They were. Yeah, because our brand was already something that was super sexy and super attractive and had a great social media following. Um, the idea hadn't been done before. The business model showed that there was an opportunity for this to be successful. Um, so they spent their time digging into the numbers and doing their due diligence before they came back, and they were like, "We think this is a great idea. Let's do it." And did they did they talk at the time about sort of how big a business this could ultimately become? Did you have an idea of, of what you thought it could become? Yeah, absolutely. I think we were all on the same page that our goal is to grow Consort into something that everyone will know what it is. You know, Our goal is to, to grow this into something that is a CB2 uh, restoration hardware le- level name recognition really? in the home space. How exciting. Um, yeah, and to really grow the interior design service part along with it. Um, and we think that's what's going to make us most valuable and, um, you know, differentiate us from everything else out there in the market. So that's a key component, the interior design services. So does that mean that you are hiring a bunch of new interior designers to sort of join your firm and understand how you work and, and what your look is all about? Yeah, well, it's funny you should ask that in this wow. moment because as business growth goes, you know, my advice to everyone is to stay flexible and, and, and to change as needed. Um, you know, we're in this moment right now where we're discovering that high end interior design services are a really, really hard, difficult thing to scale, if not impossible. It's a really challenging business. <laughs> yes. So um, over the last year, we've been focused on really pushing the company into a more product-driven place. Okay. Um, we're about to launch a 44-piece furniture collection, um, which is the first step into taking the company in, in that direction. Up until now, we've sold everyone else's stuff. Um, but for the first time, we're going to be really uh, you know, setting the brand tone and identifying ourselves as a furniture maker. Um, so we're going to be selling upholstery, case goods, tables, um, and it's a really exciting collection with three big differentiators in the market, one being style. Um, you know, I think the style that Consort offers is, it's elevated casual, it's that collected mix, it's that very like domino domain kind right. of vibe that yeah. a brand hasn't really put forth yet. Um, uh, customization is another key element for us. As someone who's been an interior designer, I know how important it is for designers to be able to want to do whatever they can to a product. You know, They want to change it by the inch, change the fabric, change the finish. Our collection is completely friendly to designers in that way. You can take a piece and do whatever you want to it. And then for the direct consumer online, we also really wanted to offer that experience. So the furniture is going to be available to shop online uh, via 3D visualization. So every product you'll be able to spin in 360 degree view. You're going to be able to change any of the 50 fabrics, five wood finishes, five plaster finishes, five glass finishes. Wow. To play with thousands and thousands of options to see your product come to life in a super high res 3D way, um, which is also setting the company up for the next level, which is kind of a tech component that we will evolve into next. Um, But that being said, we've been so focused on the product side of things. Sure. How do we possibly pay all the attention that we need to to running and maintaining a high-end interior design firm with with, uh, offices on both coasts? Um, It's been quite difficult. So, um, you know, we're currently uh, on the precipice of launching uh, a new program for our company, which is going to make interior design more accessible. Um, A a new in-store experience where you're going to be able to come in and work directly with a consort designer um, for a more pared-down version of our services. Because another thing that we see from our social media following is the constant need for our style and our interior design services, and we're just not able to offer it. Because if you run a high-end interior design firm, you can only afford to take on clients with a minimum furnishings threshold um, in terms of their budget. Sure. Otherwise, the, you know, the business is just, it's not a viable business otherwise. Um, so you know, we're seeing a lot of missed opportunity in this really sweet spot of a, of a customer market. Um, you know, it's usually a person who has about 150 to $200,000 to spend on furnishing their home. but they, and they, they appreciate style, they, appreciate, they want to invest in nicely designed pieces, but they don't want to spend the fee on an interior designer. And yeah. 
it's a, it's, it's a huge demographic that's kind of gone untapped and, and un, unserviced. So um, we're about to launch a model that's going to speak to that person and allow them to kind of have services um, that they normally wouldn't be able to get access to. So, and the idea is that it's going to be a, a digital product that you'll be able to offer them, or it's something where they come to your stores and, and sort of start the process there? We'll be evolving it into a digital product, but to, but to launch, um, you know, as Tim Gunn says, you make it work. You work with what you have. And if you're a small right. business running, running very lean, um, we are using what we have. We have a really, we have two really amazing locations. We have great brand identity and we have great organic reach. And we already have a ton of people that come to us wanting to work with us that we have to turn down. So um, we're gonna start with a very like analog experience. You know, everybody wants to sit down with Joanna Gaines with her laptop open right. sure. and a tray of muffins. Yeah. And they wanna go on that <laughs> laptop and they wanna see their room come to life and they wanna walk away feeling like they got some great advice. And um, you know, you're gonna be able to come into consort, you're gonna be able to sit down with us, we're gonna give you refreshments, and you're gonna work on your, your, your uh, you're gonna work on your room, and you're gonna walk away feeling like you have some really, you have a really great place to start. And if you wanna work with us further, then you know, there'll be uh, uh, certain structures and- Okay, um, so you'll explain what the tiers, various but... fees would be, and there'll be tiers, and okay. Exactly. So, and when someone walks in, as you were just describing in your example, someone walks in and says, I've got $150,000, to spend on on furnishings. So what what would the design services fee be for, for a project like that, for example? Um, I think I'm gonna remain tight-lipped tight on that because okay. we're, we're still okay, we're just about, about to, to launch, launch that model. Okay, okay. <laughs> but, but that's often the challenge, right? That people don't understand that, sure, you, you've got that money set aside, but there's also the design fee and, and some design firms have a design fee and then an hourly rate to work with. Are you are you sort of thinking that it'll be sort of an hourly thing? If yeah, you... I think with our with our um, high end services, mm -hmm. it's uh, you know an upfront design up, it's an upfront design fee plus an hourly plus commission on a product. Okay, that's terrifying to somebody else who sure. maybe has like thirty thousand dollars and they just want to do like their living room and their dining room. Like if they suddenly started paying those fees, they have no money for furniture anymore. You know. Um, but we get so many people that walk into our stores that have that budget. They have $30,000 to spend on their living room and their dining room. And I'll be in the store sometimes and they'll be like, oh my God, it's you. And they show me their phone. Like, Aww. I just bought this place. And like, yeah. do you think that table will work there? And right. like, can you guys help me? And I'm yeah. just like, oh, I wish I could, but like, I can't. But then it's like, I could have just sold them a table and a sofa and a piece of art and like that just walked out the door, yeah. you know? So, so we're realizing that like we have to start talking to these people and we have to start helping them. And it's really exciting to do so because it can be quick and it can be easy and they can walk away feeling super happy. Well, so was the furniture collection that you're launching, because I want to get back to that for a moment, was, was that in part born out of thinking about these, these services that you wanted to be able to provide? Um, it, well, actually, the furniture collection was really born out of um, catering to our trade our trade base. Okay. Um, when we launched the shops, we really thought that we were going to be speaking direct to the consumer, but trade has become our bread and butter. It's interior designers who are shopping with us. So we really designed the collection with them in mind. Um, you know, A, we wanted it to be super customizable. Right. B, we wanted to, you know, provide a certain style that I felt like was missing from the market. And then in terms of the price point, we really wanted it to be pretty friendly, you know? I think we could be charging a lot more than what we've priced the furniture at, but we wanted it to be accessible. We wanted it to be that kind of furniture that a designer who is working under a certain budget knows that like, God, I wish I just had like 5,000 more dollars to spend on the table, but I don't. Yeah. But then they see what we're offering and you know, we're able to really provide that kind of furniture that's, that, that's, that's gonna have a wider reach. So, and the furniture collection is going to be launching at High Point in a few weeks, mm -hmm. and then it will be it'll be available sort of shortly thereafter. Yes. So we're actually um, going to be doing a preview at the Architectural Digest Design Show this Thursday, um, and when that launches, the first fifteen pieces of the collection will go live on the website at the same time. So. Um, you know, an early piece of the collection will be shoppable this week, which is Got very it. exciting. Very exciting. Uh, then we go to High Point in April, where we'll launch the full collection. And at that point, uh, yeah, the entire 44-piece collection will be available online as well. As well. Okay. And then it'll be in your in your shops. And, and so right now you've got New York and L.A. And what's, what's sort of the ultimate build-out strategy there? So 
again, it's all about a flexible end game, right? When we first started this company and we first went out for our initial round of investment, we thought we just want to scale this as quickly as possible, open as many locations as possible. Um, and then we took a pause and we decided to reallocate the funds that we were thinking about opening a third store with to launch a furniture collection. And now that we're launching this furniture collection, um, you know, we're really thinking about what the next great move is. And now that we've started playing around with this 3D visualization technology and we're seeing everything that's happening in that space, we really think that we're moving into more of a, a tech-driven direction as a company. So I think stay tuned for what's next for console. Well, that's very exciting. And I'm, and I'm fascinated by the 3D technology and, we, and we've covered it extensively both on the site and, and in Business of Home magazine because I really do believe that the 3D technology is just going to transform our, our industry, and you obviously must feel the same way. And you want to be able to incorporate that into what your site and your and your design business that you're building out as well to really give people sort of 3D realistic renderings of what their space. Yeah, absolutely. Can look like. I mean, you see these companies like Modsy right yes. now, which um, you know is it's like a, a shopping website that's kind of disguised a little bit as a, a design service. Um, but yeah, you can plop your furniture in there and you can see a room in 360 degrees and you have the kind of augmented reality experience of like seeing how everything comes together. So we're really setting ourselves up to start walking down that road as a design company. That's very exciting. And, and so is that part of what you were presenting to investors and, and investors are excited to, to get behind that? Because yep. that sounds like a much more expensive endeavor than some of the other things we've been talking about. Yes, um, and it's not as expensive as you actually think it would be. Okay. Um, in the grand scheme of things, when you're launching a 44-piece collection with thousands of options in terms of the variants, the different things that you can do to it and changing all the fabrics and finishes, if you were to prototype every one of those pieces of furniture and then do a photo shoot with it, it would be hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars to sure. get all those images in order to put on your site and be able to sell it. But with this technology, it's 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 like the cost of an average photo shoot to be able to produce this and and and, and get it up. Because digitally, you can put you can put all of the options on there. Yeah. Without having to photograph each single piece. Yeah. 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 The okay. technology is there and it's very accessible and it's it's not quite expensive. Um, so I don't know. I, I, I'm lucky enough to understand website building, and mm -hmm. I'm lucky enough to not have to like invest in a giant firm to help me build this out because I know I have a developer and I have a programmer and I have a great designer and I understand like user experience. So right. I could kind of piecemeal the building mm -hmm. of all that together. Um, but yeah, this technology, it, it's kind of new. We were lucky enough to find a company who was excited about um, getting into furniture and um, was willing to partner with us. Uh, in a way in order to kind of like build it for for themselves as well. Um, so, you know, it's all about finding key partners who are excited about your space and excited about try something new, I think, when, when you're trying to build something new. Yeah, that is very exciting. So why did making your own line make more sense to you than speaking of finding partners versus a licensing agreement with a, with a big company that was, that was known? Why did it make more sense for you to do it on your own? Um, the margins. <laughs> okay, so it was much more profitable. Yeah, we wanted to control our own product and, mm -hmm. and make it more profitable. Um, everything is American made, which is super exciting. Yeah. Um, you know, we really work, we're working with uh, the leading fabricators across the country, the same fabricators that are producing room and boards, furniture, and blue dot, one King's Lane. Um, so we're working with uh, some really top tier furniture manufacturers, um, but it's all being manufactured everywhere. We have upholstery in Los Angeles, we have glass in Brooklyn, we have plaster in Chicago, we have um, hard goods coming out of uh, Pennsylvania. Um, so it's been really fun to travel around and see everything Fantastic. prototyping. And um, But logistics, however, that's probably a whole other podcast. It's a whole other nightmare to be discussed. <laughs> well, and, and, and you were lucky enough to find a, a sourcing partner, yes? Someone that sort of helped you along the way? Um, we hired a product developer. Okay. Yeah, someone, <clears throat> someone that was, uh, uh, he's a very talented furniture designer, and he okay. understands, uh, you know, designing furniture for big box stores as well as right. more of the indie market because he has his own yeah. line as well. Um, so he's been really key in helping us um, talk to these fabricators and and find them and source things and. And as you say, I mean logistics, which really is going to be the next huge challenge for you yeah uh is it is something that that companies spend hundreds of millions of dollars perfecting and it is challenging so do you have partners that you're looking to for that or 
Uh, for logistics, you know, we've been through several partners, um, and it's been a little bit of a trial and error game. I think we've okay. landed on we've landed on a shipping partner that we think is like going to treat us right this time. Okay. Um, but you know, again, as a small business, it's it's been the biggest challenge because um, you know, without proven history of sales for a furniture collection or right. or proven history of volume, you know, they're really taking a chance on you in terms yep. of bringing you on. And you really want to, you know, if we're offering a level of product that we are, you want to be able to find a shipping partners that's going to provide the level of service that the customer is going to expect, not just some like mom and pop truck that's been outsourced by some umbrella company that's going to dump something off on your on your on your doorstep. So. Um, you know, there, there's a lot that goes into it. I always joke that, you know, I have a startup and, you know, all these startups that are super successful now are designing a suitcase that comes in two sizes and they just change the color every season and it's lightweight so it could ship anywhere and it becomes like an international success. Yes. The one thing that I decided to start doing <laughs> involves so many hundreds of things between interior design services and the clients and all the vendors and all the contractors you work with to a retail location where we're wholesaling you know uh things from makers and vendors and artists and then starting our own furniture collection which involves so many different fabricators and logistics and the team and an e-commerce component it's it's wild yes you are scaling a huge huge business it's hard i think the biggest thing that i've learned over the past two years in trying to launch this endeavor is to stay focused, um, to stay focused and to, to stay flexible. And again, as, as we recognize that something might not be working, to be really flexible and honest with yourself and, and willing to change the direction of your company like that, to come right. up with a solution, yes. to come up with something new um, and to you know remain focused. And I think right now we've decided that our focus is in being a furniture maker and our company is going to become furniture, and, and that's where we're headed. And I think that's, that's your focus right now. That's what we're focused You're on. You're going right to become now. furniture makers. Yeah. And and this new so it's 44 pieces, and then all of these abilities to customize and, and everything else. But mm -hmm. that's that's the start of, of you being furniture makers. Yeah. That, this is our company now, and um, you know we love interior design. It's the root of what we do. We right. are still going to be offering it as a service, but right. you know it's really there to help you understand and love our furniture even more. So you're scaling back your own interior design projects then in order to, to focus on all of this. We're keeping our interior design clients um, on the high end level. I think right. we're just going to start being more selective about okay. who we bring on and, and, and you know what they could, how they could possibly serve our company in terms of the style, the level of project or, or you know what we might be able to get out of it. But you know we've always been interested in doing things that are going to reach a lot of people. So we're starting to think about interior design services in that capacity too as, as, as the business evolves. And speaking of businesses evolving, the interior design business is forever evolving. Uh, and you know, you mentioned Noah earlier, who we were just talking with recently, and he's trying to figure out how to how to celebrate the interior designer and, and make people appreciate what working with an interior designer is, is all about, uh, both from a cost side and just from recognizing what what artists, interior designers, truly are. Where's the interior design business going? Where I mean, the, there's the online companies. You mentioned Modsy, you know, a company that makes it look like, oh, you can just use our service or, you know, some of these other people that seem to want to maybe replace interior designers. Where's that all going? It's a tough question. It's, um, you know, it's a struggle because I love interior design so much. I appreciate the art form. I appreciate the service and everything that goes into it. I appreciate the collaborative element, like I mentioned earlier. Like that's that's my favorite part of anything that I do. Um, I don't think that it can ever be replaced by anything technological. I think at the end of the day, there you want a person. You want to be able to connect with someone. You want to be able to trust them right. to tell you what to do in their home. And I don't think there's going to be an algorithm that's going to do that for you. I think it's a luxury service, mm -hmm. and I think that it it the only way that you can really be successful in it is by catering to a certain level of person who would never want that like easy tech portion of what you do anyway. Um, but I do think that design has become so so uh, accessible over the last ten years, even going back to when I started Domain Home. Now my domain, yeah. Um, you know, people have access to so much now in terms of knowledge of 
of uh, furniture design to where you can buy things mm-hmm. to brands going direct to consumer that there is this huge client base of again the person who has like 150,000 to 200,000 dollars to spend on their home who doesn't need an interior designer they have great style they understand how to do things they're willing to open the boxes and install things themselves but they still appreciate the advice that that they could get from a designer so i think we're going to see a huge shift in the market in terms of creating a new interior design services model that speaks directly to that person ah okay hint 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 and that's part of what's coming next (laughs) for consort well, that that's very exciting. You've got a lot going on. Yes. I, I can't wait to see the furniture line. It sounds like I'll get to see it in just a few days. Yes, you will. And then at High Point in just a few weeks. So that's very exciting. I, I can't believe you, you were so generous to take the time to come and see us because you've obviously got so much going on. You but, know, these, these conversations are like meditation for me. So anytime I can pause well, and just kind of, you know, think about what I'm doing and blurt it out, it makes me, it makes me feel like, a, you know, I'm taking a big deep breath. I'm helping you to clear your head. I'm, I'm so glad. About and I will that. be working the booths at all of these shows, so please come see me. I will literally be in the AD booth, the High Point booth, the ICFF booth, so please come say hello. You will get to see Matt in person, yes. <laughs> and he can reject you in person when you ask if you can hire him to be your interior designer. Not anymore. So, so Not I'm anymore. Sorry, can't. But I do have a service I could offer you. Let me tell you about it. That, that's very exciting. Well, thank you again. This has really been, been great. Thank you so much. My guest has been Matt Sanders the co-founder and creative director of Consort. You can find us on iTunes. The show is Business of Home, and I'm Dennis Scully. If you like what you hear, please feel free to subscribe, and most of all, leave us a review on iTunes. That really helps build our awareness. This show is produced every week by Editor-at-Large. You can find us at editoratlarge.com, on Facebook or Instagram. Thanks again to our producer, Taylor Barker. We'll see you next week. Thank you.